scripture passage this morning comes from two books, uh, sorry, two chapters, the book of Exodus, the end of chapter 35 and the beginning of chapter 36. And if you have your Bibles or your suitable electronic devices, I'd invite you to uh, find your way to Exodus 35, verse 30, and I'll be reading uh, from that point to Exodus 36, verse 7. Just a caveat, there are interesting names in this passage, and I am from Oklahoma, so please forgive me in advance. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezael, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. He has given both him and Oholiab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. So Bezael and Oholeb and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezael and Oholeb and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given ability and who is willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing And said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order. And they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I have confessed on any number of occasions to you, I am not much of an artist. My third grade art teacher did encourage me to play football. <laughs> that is a true story. Um, um, as, an, as an artist, she was confident I was a very good defensive lineman. And uh, I have sort of lived under that cloud of inferiority. I look at art and I go, wow, I, I can't even begin to imagine how that happens. Uh, I, am, I, I often compensate for that in my talks with the visual designs. Uh, I'm, I'm often tempted to turn the visuals in the talk to an art history lesson because that's the closest I can come to accessing art is the history of it. I get that. I've never received a commission 
to develop a work of art. Um, more the opposite. Go play football instead. But our, our text this morning is about the commission to go create something, to go build a thing. And that thing was very important in the life of the people of God, was to build the tabernacle, the, the tent of worship. The people of God were a mobile people in the Exodus. What was supposed to be a journey of a few weeks between Egypt and Palestine turned into a generation-long detour in the wilderness. And the people of God didn't build a city out in the Sinai. They couldn't. They had to keep moving, looking for water, hoping that tomorrow's delivery of manna actually happened, that the quail would come so that they could be fed. They wandered in the wilderness, a generation dying off and another generation of, of, of immigrants, of refugees, building a life together. And they realized that the way to worship the God who had delivered them was to worship him in a mobile fashion. And so this tabernacle, this tent, was to be created. And chapters 30 through 35, thir thir chapters 30 through 34 of Exodus unpack in detail how that's supposed to look. And chapter 35 begins with how that is to be constructed. The tabernacle has ancient and modern elements in it. Hebrew worship wasn't just about praising God for God's sake. Hebrew worship was designed to create an order and a rhythm to life. It was grounded in remembering the Sabbath. The, the purpose of the tabernacle wasn't to gather the people of God to praise God, per se. It was to gather the people of God to create a rhythm of life, to remember that once a week you stopped doing everything. You didn't even build a fire by your tent on the morning of the Sabbath. We can't go without coffee on Sunday morning. <laughs> but, or at least I can't. Maybe some of you can. But, but they're building a way of life, a rhythm. Reframing life around and in remembering of God's creative and justice-making activity. God had commanded his people not to be like the rest of the nations, working seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. He said, one day out of the week, stop. Relax. Come into my presence. Let's have fellowship. And you know what? I'm going to build a great big tent and it's going to go to you so that you don't have to come to it. 
God's desire to build a people whose rhythm of life included a day apart from all the rest of the work that went on in their lives was so intense that the primary design for worship was that God would come to them. And so this tent needed to be something special. It needed to be something other than just a sheet of canvas. It needed to be beautiful. And so this ancient rhythm of life, Sabbath, got paired with a very modern tradition, fundraising. Because it took some resources to build a really nice tabernacle to get the right kind of cloth that could be weaved in the proper way and dyed in the proper way and and designed in the proper way and all the precious metals that went into it. That, That stuff doesn't just happen. Oh, that it would, but it doesn't. And so what you have in this text is, is the blending of a very ancient call to Sabbath and very modern call to raise the support. And by the time we get to verse 30, enough gifts and pledges, as we would say in the modern world, has come in. And the work can begin. And God appoints two people. Bezael, whose name in Hebrew means in the shadow of God. And Oholib, whose name in Hebrew means Father Shrine. These two men were called and had the character and the capacity to lead all the other artisans in the community in creating this space where God would travel amongst his people. This tabernacle, this this way for God to move with his people. There is embedded in these verses some fascinating realities about Bezael and Oholib. They weren't just great designers and great craftsmen. The text said, says that they could teach as well, thereby exploding the myth of those who can do, those who can't teach. They could do both. They were, they were dual threats. They, the text says in 36.1 that every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary were to do the work. This wasn't just the two of them putting on a show. This was the mobilization and the organization and the equipping and the directing of all of the people of God. Because I suspect it wasn't just the artists who were working on this. The artists would have to go work on it and that would leave some other chores undone that people had to fill in. So this 
building of the tabernacle wasn't just for the artists. It wasn't just an artsy project. It was a project for the whole people of God. Everyone gets mobilized. Everyone gets equipped. Everyone is involved. But in verses 2 through 7, we read that there is leadership and material in abundance. It was the Victorian era orphanage builder, George Mueller, who said, God's work done in God's way never lacks God's provision. Now, I have heard that quoted in situations where I had doubts about God's work being done. I had, work, I had doubts that it was God's way being done, but people sure wanted God's resources handed over. So I'm always a little bit skeptical and cynical when I hear that quote, except to say, I think at its base, it's fundamentally true. The people of God in the wilderness, in the desert, got it. We're going to be moving around for a generation. And when we move into the promised land, God wants to come visit us. So we better build something beautiful that can withstand the years, the wear and tear of moving and be beautiful for centuries to come. And so they began the work of building. And we read at the end of this passage how how there was so much coming in, this project was so enthusiastically subscribed to that too much was coming in and, and the leaders finally had to say, enough, in the low German, Schluss, enough, we don't need any more. When, when was the last time you heard a fundraising project say, thank you, we have enough? <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. But here they are. With, with more stuff than they could use. Because the people of God had seen a vision, what it meant to have God walk with them in life. And so this artistic creation, this commission to create something unimaginatively beautiful, isn't just an arts project, as important as that is. It's a project that everyone amongst the people of God touched in their own way. In fact, this, this passage is about the dignity of labor, that all work is God's work. The work of designing and weaving and goldsmithing is work and it's honorable and it's full of dignity and the work of teaching and instructing and guiding is full of dignity and honorable and the work of putting out fires is honorable and full of dignity all the work we do all the ways in which we take our hands and our hearts and our brains and use them for the goodwill of society. It's full of dignity and honor. 
and creativity and possibility. All work is God's work. This text teaches us that the Sabbath is the beginning and end of work. Not just the beginning and end of God's creative cycle, but the starting point and the ending point of our creativity. That that our work, that our creativity leads us to Sabbath. We love to talk about purpose in life. We love to talk about goals in life. I've, I've been enjoying uh, a year in a group of pastors called the Growing Healthy Churches Initiative. And most of it I do enjoy. The part that makes me sometimes want to set my hair on fire <laughs> is, is the part around goals and setting direction. And it's like... This passage reminds us that God's goal is Sabbath. That the rhythm of life that God calls us to is to get off our treadmills. Dated cultural reference, the closing credits to the cartoon The Jetsons. Everybody over 50 laughs, everybody under 50 goes, the what? George Jetson gets on a treadmill at the end of the closing credits and it just goes faster and faster. Thank you. And all of a sudden he's being, he's being run on the treadmill, not he's running on the treadmill. Sabbath, the lack of Sabbath in our lives is like the Jetsons closing credits. Our lives simply become a perpetual motion machine that gets us nowhere. And the Sabbath is the point of our work. Not, oh, thank God it's Friday. But the Sabbath is the point of our work. To be able to stop and say, thank you, God, for all of the gifts that you've given me. Thank you for the creativity that you've given my life. Thank you for the capacities that you've given me. And now I'm going to stop and rest and recreate and retool and prepare for what's next. That rhythm of life. When we talk about a passionate spirituality, when we talk about prayer and work, when people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. When I look in the mirror and say, Pastor, you're tired and exhausted, <laughs> which is a lot recently, they w- I, I'm simply struck by the notion of how little Sabbath has been paid attention to in my own life and in the lives of others. How little we, how much we ignore Sabbath in our midst. How we're always George Jetson in the closing credits. Because we've forgotten the Sabbath is the starting point of our work and the end of our work. The second thing this text teaches us is the equal value and importance of capital formation and labor allocation. I love it when I get to drag some MBA stuff out into a sermon. It wasn't just a fundraising project. It wasn't just 
oh, let's bring our treasures to the storehouse and then God will, you know, sort of cover it with his, you know, anointed ooze from heaven and poof, good stuff will be created. It was a both and. It was bring your resources and then build. It was capital formation and labor allocation. And it wasn't just, oh, we'll work on it willy-nilly. I'll do what I want to do and you do what you want to do. There, was a, there were people in charge and there was a pattern to the labor. And if you read Exodus chapter 30 through 34, in mind-numbing detail, you discover how much went into the creation of the tabernacle. Our money and our work are both valuable. Labor is dignified in this passage, as is capital. And whether we're thinking on a microeconomic level, you know, our own personal pocketbook, or whether we think on a public policy level, that truth is God's truth. Capital and labor are both valued. They're both important. They're both dignified in this passage by God. Third thing this passage teaches us is the universality of giftedness and the particularity of leadership. Everybody had a role to play. Two people were called to lead and neither one of them was Moses. Moses wasn't in charge of this project. Moses commissioned these two guys with the funny names and then he stepped back and the two with the commission followed the instructions that God had given. They didn't make it up as they go. They didn't, they didn't create their own gig. But everyone was involved. Universality of giftedness. People gave to the project. They worked in the project. They supported those who worked on the project. Everyone was mobilized. Everyone was involved. And there were particular individuals who were called in the shadow of God to build our Father's shrine. The last thing this passage teaches is that creation is, in a, is a place of abundance. In the Christian world, when we want to do fundraising, the danger is that we talk about scarcity. We just don't have enough. I mean, I, for, for giggles, during my seminary years, I used to watch a lot of Christian television. And I was always struck in those shows at the amount of time that gospel, and again, I'll use air quotes advisedly, gospel was preached versus the amount of time that uh, the person who was in charge of the show talked about how if people didn't give, the show would shut down. God's work done in God's way never lacks God's provision because God is a generous God. Because creation is full of abundance. Because if we're doing our job, fulfilling the first thing that God called us to be, good stewards of creation, creation will continue to be abundant. It's when we 
start conceiving of God as a closed book. Start conceiving of God as someone who wants to take stuff away from us. Start conceiving of ourselves not as stewards but of exploiters. I'm going to get mine before I get gotten to. That's when the wheels fall off. This text reminds us that creation is abundance. That God is generous. And because creation is abundant and God is generous, we can be too. One of the things that I love about this church, one of the things I love about being in community with you is the generosity that I see. Generosity of spirit, generosity of resources, people who are willing to to do whatever it takes to meet whatever the need is. It's an amazing gift that you give to each other. You know in your hearts of God's generosity because you live generous lives. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and it is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. You know who he said that to? Sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. That quote was to trash haulers. Yes, your work too has dignity. So this morning, some questions for us to think about. How does your work connect you to God? If if passionate spirituality is built on the premise of a life of prayer and a life of work, how does your work connect you to God? Maybe an equally important question to ask, how does your work disconnect you from God? How does our work remain important when the world is changing around us? Imagine in the early, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, when automobiles began to take over as a means of transportation. Imagine how buggy whip makers fought to stay in business, had to reinvent themselves, had to think about downsizing their industry, about people who got displaced and had to find new work. How does our work remain important when the world is changing all around us? How do we advocate for a just economy where work isn't just sliding a card, punching a clock, where work is our craft? Pastors sometimes, I think, get rightly accused of not really understanding the workaday world, but I understand it this way. You've employed me to, to engage in the craft of unpacking the scriptures. That is a, that's a holy call, but it's also a call for me to 
learn the craft, to get better and better at it. So recently, one of the things I've added to my daily routine, oh, you're all going to have a geek out moment here. There's a website called A Daily Dose of Greek. Two minutes of working with the Greek text. It's like, oh my gosh, the people at Madison Street Church actually pay me a salary to do this. How wonderful. Because it's my work. Because the more I know about how to take the ancient text and bring it into the postmodern world we live in, the better equipped you will be as followers of Jesus. At least that's the value proposition. How do we advocate for a just economy where work is our craft, where we take pride in our work, where it isn't just, yeah, that's what I do for a living. But this is what God has called me to do. Finally, how does our work shape the way we think about what God is doing in the world? How does our work shape the way we think about what God is up to? One more thing. It's Pope Francis who said, work is fundamental to the dignity of the person. Work, to use an image, anoints with dignity, fills us with dignity, makes us similar to God who has worked and still works, who always acts. We are created in the image of God. What is that image of God? We create, we work, and we Sabbath. What do you think? <laughs>